Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in today for Michael Krasny. The West Coast voted solidly for Joe Biden, but California, Oregon, and Washington have plenty of extremist groups with anti-government rhetoric and ideas. In fact, last week's assault on the U.S. Capitol by violent insurrectionists was in some ways previewed the day before at a Shasta County Board of Supervisors meeting, where an angry, pro-Trump, anti-mask audience threatened violence. Coming up, we'll delve into the roots of political extremism in California and the West, and links to last week's deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Good morning and welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer and today for Michael Krasny. Well, the investigation into how a violent mob was able to break through security last week and get into the U.S. Capitol continues and it may take congressional hearings to uncover exactly what happened. But in some ways, the whole event was foreshadowed the day before right here in California at a meeting of the Shasta County Board of Supervisors in Redding. Pro-Trump, anti-government residents came into the building threatening violence with guns and ropes. And now the FBI is warning about the possibility of armed protests in all 50 capitals between now and the inauguration of Joe Biden. It prompts us this morning to take a closer look at violent extremism here in California and the West, especially in rural parts of those states. Joining us are Scott Rod. He's a reporter with Capital Public Radio, joins us from Sacramento. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Also joining us, Haley Branson Potts from the LA Times. She was up in Reading the day of that uh, or uh, that meeting uh, with the Board of Supervisors. She joins us from Los Angeles. Hi, Haley. And also joining us is A.C. Thompson. He's a reporter with ProPublica and a frontline correspondent. His investigation of the white supremacist groups involved in the Charlottesville rally is featured in the frontline documentary Documenting Hate Charlottesville. Welcome to A.C. Thompson as well. Let me begin with you, um, uh, if I could, Scott. Uh, You know, the Capitol up in Sacramento has been the site of protests for several months now, uh, going all the way back, I suppose, to the anti-gas tax protests, uh, the anti-vaccine protests, uh, as well as now some of the pro-Trump rallies. And uh, I'm just wondering, what, what is the mood up there, and what are you hearing uh, and seeing uh, from some of these groups? 
Well, there have been weekly protests uh, since the election, and that's been uh, you know Trump supporters coming out, um, it, you know, advancing this um, notion that doesn't have any basis that the election was stolen. Um, but th- those protests have been largely peaceful. Uh, but you also have groups such as the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, California Militia. It's mostly the Proud Boys, though, um, who are coming out as well, uh, you know, with those protests and. Um, often clashing with uh, counter-protesters. Uh, and it was about eight weeks in a row <clears throat> that there was violence at some of these at these protests. Uh, it, it was quiet over the holidays, but then just this past week on the same day that there was the um, uh, attack on the U.S. Capitol, um, there was once again a protest and once again some violent clashes as well. So that, that sense of tension and concern, I think, eased over the holidays, but it's now heightened again after last week and especially heading into this weekend and looking ahead to the inauguration. And we've heard a bit about the Proud Boys. They've been involved in previous protests. President Trump alluded to them. They even came up in one of the presidential debates. Uh, What is the nature of the Proud Boys in California? How spread out are they? How large are they? And I know you've talked to some of them. What do they tell you? Um, you know, there, there are chapters all around California. Um, certainly there, there are a number of chapters up here. There's a, a pretty um, a, a sizable one up in the Placer County area. Um, uh, you know, there's some also in the Central Valley. Um, so y- they're definitely, you know, present and, and I would say prevalent. Um, you know, when I talk to them, th- their founding, um, you know, was uh, – well, their founder was a white nationalist, and that was very much what their ideals were were founded on. You know, sort of xenophobic, um, anti-immigration, and so forth. Um, when when I talk to individual members, they say you know that they don't subscribe to those ideals necessarily. They you know don't um, they they say that they are not racist, they are not um, xenophobic. Uh, when you hear what, what are they what are they for? What are they against? You, they they say that they're that they're for. Um, family values they'll, they'll they'll describe it as sort of family values as kind of a more uh i guess you could say a traditional sort of family structure um they'll say that often they say that their their presence at these protests is to uh protect the first amendment rights and ability to protest uh, of the other protesters that are there um both of those things though you know those words are often um contrasted or contradicted by their actions at some of these protests, for example. I mean, you'll hear, um, you know, people walking around and they, they, in multiple confrontations, I've heard things such as, uh, you know, someone who, uh, during a confrontation, someone who uh, appeared to be Latino, a uh, proud boy, you know, said, where, where, where's your, you know, what's your social security number, alluding to you're an, you're an undocumented immigrant. So mm-hmm. there is that rhetoric there in the confrontations. And yeah. also, you know, uh, for the protests as well, saying that they provide security, they are often going outside of these protests into the street, um, engaging in conflict with counter protesters, which is not security for a protest. That's yeah. activism. What you alluded to, excuse me, you alluded to violence before. Uh, are they generally involved in that? I mean, where is the violence coming from? Who's instigating it? Uh, you know, the violence is with uh, counter protesters um, and, and it's it's hard and, to and lump who is them. that exactly? Right. It's hard to lump them under under one umbrella. It's, you know, it's some uh, some adhere to a kind of Antifa ideology. Um, some would describe themselves more so as, you know, sort of Marxist or communist bent. Um, others would describe themselves as Black Lives Matter. Uh, regardless, they're there to protest against the presence of Trump supporters, but but moreover, the kind of far right wing groups such as the Proud Boys. Um, and 
you know, the Proud Boys will often go outside of this, frankly, what's become a designated area of protest outside the Capitol, where police have actually formed perimeters around them to keep them contained, to keep out counter-protesters, to keep the peace, essentially. They'll move outside of this perimeter, engage with these counter-protesters in the street, and that's when violence ensues. Um, and it's hard to pinpoint, you know, who threw the first punch, who threw the first, you know, firecracker or bottle or sprayed pepper spray first, but regardless, they are actively seeking out these confrontations. And, and frankly, counter-protesters are, are willing to engage in it as well. That's Scott Rod, reporter with Capital Public Radio. And let me bring Haley Branson-Potts in now from the LA Times. And Haley, uh, you were up in Reading um, the day that this Board of Supervisors meeting happened. I, I understand you weren't actually at the meeting, but I know you talked to people who were. Uh, describe what happened. Okay. They had a, a board of supervisors meeting called for that day, and it was it was scheduled to be virtual. Uh, the board had decided in December, you know, because of COVID, because of, you know, like everywhere else in California, cases are rising. We're going to do virtual meetings as long as the county is in the state's most restrictive tier. So they had a virtual meeting planned. And I, I mean, for months, you know, even, you know, before what happened last week, a, a number of protesters have, have, and, and, you know, citizens have, have gathered outside, um, you know, protesting everything from from vaccines to mask mandates to, you know, their refusal to secede from California. You, you've just got a number of people who are mad about a number of different things. And so this meeting last week, um, it was the first meeting for a newly elected supervisor who's closely aligned with um with more of the anti-government folks up there. Um, he personally came and unlocked the doors and let around 100 people into the closed chambers. The seats had been removed. The microphones were off. You know, it was a completely unauthorized gathering. Um, but basically he, you know, they conducted the meeting half online and, and you know, with the people who were there. So, you, you know, it, it was not authorized. And then you had people coming up and, and speaking and, actively threatening violence. Um, they mentioned, uh, you know, an impending civil war and revolution. And one man even said, um, you know, speaking to the supervisors, he said, uh, you know, when the ballot box fails, the next option is the cartridge box. And you've made bullets expensive. And luckily for you, ropes are reusable. Mm-hmm. And so the rhetoric has gotten really extreme at this point, and there's a lot of concern over where that will go next. And Shasta County, we should say, voted two to one for Donald Trump uh, both times, uh, both in 2016 and then last uh, last year uh, in 20, uh, 2020. Uh, was there any pushback to the rhetoric uh, or to the supervisor, this freshman newly elected supervisor who let them into the building? Well, if if there was, it was, you know, it's muted out because you've got 100 people there in person, you know, the other supervisors as planned. And there were, so there were two supervisors in the chamber, three who were virtual. And, and the loudest voices in the room are the ones you're going to hear. And the loudest voices are the 100 people there unmasked, crowded into the closed chambers. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I spoke to one of the supervisors who was virtual. He's a former police chief in Reading. Um, and he said that he, you know, he really worries for for the county employees, you know, for, um, you know, elected officials. He said the um, the county's health officer you know, has gotten threats. Uh, they've actually, you know, had to install 
you know, lights outside of her home. She's, you know, they've they've read her address in public meetings. And so, there, yes, there there is a lot of concern. And, you know, this being, you know, this is local government. And, you know, one of the things that's so alarming about the conversation right now is that in a lot of, you know, there's so much anger about so many things kind of coming to a head right now. And in a lot of these people's minds, the local government is just as evil as, you know, the government in Washington. And these local government buildings are are less secure. You know, there's not a lot of security. You know, prior to the the pandemic, there there wasn't even a lot of, you know, people showing up to the supervisors meeting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there's just a lot of anger to contend with, even at this very local level. Yeah. I want to bring AC Thompson in in a second. But before I do, I want to ask you both, Scott and Haley, and I'll start with you, Scott. Did you do you sense any connection between everything that's been described here and the effort to recall Governor Newsom? Uh, you know, folks who are you know part of the recall effort are uh, very much present during these protests at the Capitol. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that th- there is an overlap, certainly in terms of, you know, folks who come out who claim that the election was stolen. Um, you know, when I speak to them, they often are supportive of recalling Gavin Newsom. So I would say that the presence is certainly out there at the Capitol week after week. And I think they see that as kind of their main main, main target area for gathering signatures, certainly. Yeah. Um, I want to actually bring in AC real quick because we're coming up to a break. But AC, everything that you've heard, uh, how does it fit with, uh, you know, what you've been reporting on over the last few years? You know, quick, quickly, so, if you could. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, this is to be expected. People have been talking about civil war for the last four years. They've been talking about armed insurrection for years in these circles. And it was all kind of building to this. So to me, I'm just not surprised. All right. We're going to continue this conversation about extremism in California, Oregon, and Washington. Lots more to talk about. We hope you'll join the conversation. We'll be back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Michael Krasny. We're talking about extremism groups in California and the Western states with Scott Rod, reporter for Capital Public Radio, Haley Branson Potts, staff writer with the Los Angeles Times, and A.C. Thompson, reporter with ProPublica and Frontline correspondent as well. Uh, he has investigated these white supremacist groups. And let me give out the phone number if you want to join us. It's 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. 
You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or if you prefer, you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. And let me bring uh, you back in, AC. Uh, You were talking about this being not at all surprising. Um, So what what has changed? I mean, you know, obviously the United States has a very long, deep history of white supremacy and racism. I mean, going all the way back to the founding, really. Um, and, and so when you say it's, it's not surprising, you know, why is that? Why are they emboldened now? And, and some would say, oh, it's just because of Donald Trump, but it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Right. I think there's several different things going on. And, and one thing to think about is that for a long time, a lot of the people who were deeply involved in the MAGA movement we're super pro MAGA. We should just say MAGA, make America great again. Right. The make America great movement, the broader Trump movement. And they were they were very supportive of law enforcement. And so you would go to these rallies in D.C. in recent months and you would see groups like the Proud Boys and other sort of extremist groups get right up to the line of wanting to uh, battle with the police. And they would back off and they would say, no, we back the blue. We support the police. When members of the more extreme elements of the of the Trump world felt that the election was fraudulent, that they were going to lose their leader, that their leader had been improperly forced from office in a fraudulent election. I think that started changing and people started saying, you know, you guys are now the police. You're now on the side of the communist and the socialist and this uh, flawed, phony democracy. And our only option to get our guy reinstalled as president is going to be violence. And so now we're turning against you. And I think there has been a, a move from, from the people who were not insurrectionists to becoming anti-police, anti-government insurrectionists. And you've seen that change in recent weeks. And what is the connection? You mentioned the Stop the Steal uh, movement, uh, which, of course, has been promoted heavily by President Trump and many of his supporters in Congress and elsewhere. But there's also these sort of free-floating conspiracies going on over all kinds of things, QAnon, for example. What's the connection between all of this and that? The, the QAnon and the broader conspiracy theory uh, scene is a big, big piece of the extreme fringe of the of the Trump movement. So um, with QAnon, you know, that is this near religious belief that there's a secret cabal of satanic pedophiles who are running the world and in fact are deeply connected to the Democratic Party and that we're going to have to destroy this network for freedom to, to reign. But the conspiracies on the on the far right world go back for decades and decades and decades. In the 90s, it was the New World Order. And people were chanting about the New World Order at the Capitol the other day, that there was a globalist movement to disenfranchise Americans and steal their freedoms. There have been all these conspiracies. It's a world that is steeped in a sort of magical belief in these um, dark machinations behind the scenes. Scott Rod, I'm going to let you go in a minute, but before I do, two questions. One, what are you hearing about plans at the state capitol this coming weekend? And I understand that Capitol Public Radio has purchased some protective gear uh, in, in light of all these threats. Uh, t- tell us about both those things, if you would. Sure. You know, we're seeing um, flyers, so to speak, online promoting um, armed protests at the U.S. Capitol, but also all 
50 cap, all 50 state capitals as well. And we've seen ones for Sunday and we're, we're also seeing ones for inauguration day as well next Wednesday. And, and, and it seems like Sunday may kind of set the stage for what we may see, you know, uh, you know, on Wednesday as well. So we're definitely keeping a close eye on that. We're taking it seriously, certainly law enforcement locally and at the Capitol's taking it seriously as well. Uh, as far as the gear goes, yeah, I mean, actually this over the over the last year, so I've sort of amassed a collection of, of, of gear that I wouldn't have anticipated having to use as a journalist, um, you know, gas mask, protective goggles, first aid kits. Um, you know, j- just recently we placed an order for um, stab proof and pol- uh, ballistic vests as well. And it is worth saying that, you know, so far we haven't seen folks who have been, um, you know, outwardly armed with with guns at these protests at the Capitol. But, you know, we've seen violence break out um, at some of these protests in D.C. You know, there was not this past weekend, but previously there were multiple stabbings at a Proud Boy demonstration. So, you know, we're just being a- absolutely as cautious as we can be. And, you know, when they say armed protests, we take that seriously. All right. Well, stay safe out there, Scott. I know it's an important story to report on, but of course you want to make sure your safety, as I'm sure you do too, is front and center. Scott Rod from Capital Public Radio, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. And Haley Branson-Potts, before I let you go, uh, we haven't really talked much about Southern California, uh, but there is certainly plenty of groups like this uh, in even L.A. County, but certainly San Diego County. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Oh, certainly. I mean, this, you know, something I often say is, you know, if this is happening in in small towns, this this is everywhere. you know, I, I more closely follow what's what's going on in, in rural California. But, um, you know, I mean, one of the things we're seeing right now is, you know, all of these all of these kind of disparate groups have, have sort of coalesced, uh, you know, and certainly over the last year amid the pandemic. And so, I mean, I think you're seeing, you know, if people are, are you know, more conservative, right wing and, and angry, they're they're finding a lot in common. I mean, I. You know, I've spent some time here in the Los Angeles area, you know, following groups that, that, you know, shortly after President Trump was elected, would show up to city council meetings with with large Latino population populations and, you know, protest, you know, immigration measures and sanctuary cities and, you know, actually get into shouting matches with with elected officials. And, um, you know, some of those are organized and, and some are not. I mean, but. This, this is absolutely happening everywhere right yeah. now. All right. Well, Haley, thank you so much for your reporting. I'm not sure we would have known about what happened in Reading had you not been up there that day uh, last week. So thanks so much for the work you're doing. And uh, as I said to Scott, stay safe. Thank you. All right. Let's go to the phones. And again, I'll give out the number. It's 866-733-6786. And let's start with Ryan in Clayton. Hey, Ryan. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. I just wanted to uh, quickly mention, I heard your guest um, talk about the movement to secede from California up in Northern California. Yep. I'm originally from that area. I just wanted to mention that it really began in the 1970s. It's not really a um, result of the Trump administration or any kind of Trump movement. Uh, It's primarily due to the fact that the people of Northern California feel like they're not well represented by the state and generally kept in poverty. That's all I've got. I'll take my 
Yeah, thanks very much, Ryan. I appreciate that. I believe you're alluding to the state of Jefferson movement, which many of those rural counties and some of the counties in southern Oregon as well have been talking about for many, many years, as long as I can remember. Uh, And let me just ask you, AC, uh, what do you know about uh, how loosely connected or how well organized the uh, state of Jefferson folks are? You know, I think it's it's pretty pretty loose, and I think to your caller's point, one of the things that's interesting is it's kind of gained a new energy and a new uh, life in the Trump era as more of these sort of right wing movements have been energized by Trump, and and it's the idea that's around the country. You know, there are people on the East Coast who want to have a movement where the rural parts of Virginia secede from the rest of the state, so it it's out there. I want to bring in another guest now, uh, and it's Carl uh, Segerstrom. He is assistant editor with High Country News. Carl, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. And Carl, uh, maybe just pick up on what AC was talking about there to the extent that you can, this uh, state of Jefferson movement and you know some of the anti-government actions we've seen uh, in Oregon, for example. Yeah, I, I think one thing that's really important to realize about these movements is they, they've been gaining steam and organizing um, during the Trump administration, but they've also kind of changed their target during the Trump administration because of the, a sense that they've been represented by the federal government and Trump has kind of courted these movements. So there, there's been a renewed focus on local and state level efforts um, that are at times anti-government and in times moving to replace the role of government. And in terms of, uh, you know, like the Bundy family, for example, up in Oregon, uh, they were sentenced uh, for some of their actions on federal land. I believe President Trump pardoned them. Um, how active are they and, and how do they fit in with all this? Uh, t- to be clear, the Bundy family was never sentenced for anything. They were acquitted of um, for both federal standoffs with federal agents in uh, Bunkerville, Nevada, and at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. Just just to clarify, were they were they uh, was that like a um, um, conviction that was overturned, or were they at, at the trial level were they acquitted? Do you uh, the Bundys were acquitted at the trial level twice, okay. um, but the Hammonds were ranchers who are from that area of Oregon where the Malheur Wildlife Standoff uh, Refuge occupation and standoff was. And during the Trump administration, they were pardoned by President Trump. Um, they were serving mandatory minimum sentences for setting fire to federal public lands. Um, their cause is what drew the Bundys, who are not from Oregon, but from Nevada, and some of them reside in Idaho to Oregon. And, and so fair to say that uh, by the, the, you know, pardoning them, speaking to their grievances, the president has uh, you know, sort of accelerated and accentuated what their complaints are. Absolutely. It's definitely led credence to it's it's put the force of the federal government kind of behind their claims about how they've been wronged by federal land managers and leaders within um, sort of that sphere that's broadly called the Sagebrush Rebellion ha- were actually put in, in the, uh, a man who identifies himself as a Sagebrush Rebel was actually put in charge of the Bureau of Land Management. So you can kind of see that there's a clear 
nodding to that um, that worldview and that view of how public lands should be managed within the federal government. And we're talking, management. excuse me, we're talking about uh, extremism in the West with A.C. Thompson from ProPublica and Carl Sagerstrom, assistant editor of High Country News. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Here are some listener comments. Noel asks, how about the extremists in our police departments? Um, AC, what, do you, uh, what can you tell us about that? I know there were at least two Capitol Police officers who have been suspended for apparently being sympathetic uh, to some of the insurrectionists last week. You know, that's definitely a concern. I think what we've seen over the recent years monitoring the social media police officers and uh, military officers and um, enlistees is that oftentimes there is a certain uh, sympathy for various extremist movements. And a couple of years ago, we saw a lot of that with the white supremacist movements. In the last couple of years, what we've seen more of is sympathy with uh, anti-government extremist movements like the Boogaloo movements and the militias. And um, we interviewed Rep. Andre Carson from Indiana uh, just recently at the Capitol. And he said, yeah, that's a concern of mine, that there are police officers on this Capitol Police Force who seem, he said, quote, to sympathize and empathize with these radical elements who besieged the Capitol. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing, uh, we, you know, for many years, we've seen uh, incidents and, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, they're bad apples. Uh, you know, individual police officers with in San Francisco, for example, racist and sexist, homophobic texts that have gone back and forth uh, between officers. Um, to what extent do you think, AC, that uh, what happened with, say, George Floyd and, and the others who were uh, killed at the hands of police is really is it generating a kind of uh, self-reflection or is it more just sort of uh, talk? I think you get both. I think you get um, police officers and police leaders who are very thoughtful and have are really concerned about the deterioration of relationships between communities of color and police forces. And it's, that's something I've heard from police leaders who I think are absolutely sincere and absolutely thoughtful. But I also think it's a radicalizing moment for a lot of rank and file. Look, we had months of protests where people were in the streets saying, we hate the police. We want to kill police. We're angry at police, whatever it is, defund the police. There are a lot of different messages. And if you are a rank and file police officer, it's easy to understand how you might feel that you are under siege and that you are being targeted at this moment. So I think, you know, you, you see a mix. You see people who feel like, well, I uh, empathize with, with some of these groups that are on the right, and I really don't like these uh, BLM and anti-fascist groups. I think mm -hmm. you see some of that in police, and you see some police uh, leaders and police thinkers who are saying, look, we really need to uh, evolve and change policing. President Trump and others have really tried to elevate Antifa as uh, part of the problem. There was a, you know, Shannon Grove from uh, the uh, state Senate leader uh, from Bakersfield tweeted briefly that uh, the Capitol protests last week were caused by Antifa. She took that that tweet down uh, after, no doubt, criticism because it wasn't true. But, you know, at the same time, as, as Scott Rod mentioned, uh, Antifa has joined protests, kind of an anti-protest uh, at the Capitol and elsewhere here in California. You know, what, what, what's the legitimate 
criticism of that group. And it's, I realize it's a kind of a loose federation of, of people and organizations. Uh, AC, sorry. You know, I, I think it's like this. You, you see the, the anti-fascists and their allies feel that, look, we have this incipient creeping fascism that is moving into our streets. We have these radical right-wing groups and we're scared if they have a platform to organize, if they can meet in front of the Capitol and rally people, that we will end up with a, an authoritarian, living in an authoritarian state. And so their means to combat that are absolutely violent. They're absolutely aggressive and people will get hurt and possibly killed. That is, that is the thing. So I think if that's a tactic that that's a tactic that is going to be concerning for a lot of people, whether it's law enforcement or just to average folks. Um, but that's the sort of perspective that they have, that this is our last ditch effort to combat creeping fascism. All right, let me read some listener comments here. Aparna asks, uh, while we've heard several times that some of these white supremacist groups are domestic terrorists, are groups like Proud Boys actually classified as such? Does the FBI have a list of domestic terrorist organizations? Um, let me put that one to you, Carl. I'm not familiar with a specific list of ter- terrorist organizations, but I will say in, in regards to uh, the kind of the violence that's uh, there's often a false equivalence made between violence from the left and violence from the right. And uh, the Department of Homeland Security says specifically that racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists and specifically white supremacists are the most persistent and legal threat to national security. So I think that that's kind of an important thing to look at in terms of uh, the violence on either side. All right. We are going to continue this conversation about extremism in the West uh, with Carl uh, Sagerstrom, assistant editor of High Country News, and A.C. Thompson from ProPublica. And uh, Frontline, his uh, documentary, by the way, that he worked on was called Documenting Hate, Charlottesville. I'm Scott Schaefer here today for Michael Krasny. I'll give out the phone number one more time if you'd like to join us. It's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. More to come. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour, and we're talking about political extremism in California and the West with A.C. Thompson, reporter from ProPublica. He's also a frontline correspondent. And Carl Sagerstrom, he is assistant editor with High Country News. The number to call if you want to join us is 866-733-6786. And let's go to Frank in San Jose. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, Yes, um, I was wondering if you had any if there was any perspective in terms of the role, role that white evangelical Christians have played in driving this right-wing agenda, 
uh, many of the symbols in the um, insurrection and the Capitol were Christian, invoking the cross as well as Jesus Christ. And I will take my comment offline. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Frank. Uh, AC, do you want to take that one? Yeah, it's been really fascinating to see over the last several years that all, all these movements in bracing crusader iconography and thinking of themselves as uh, knights against some sort of uh, invasion of non-Christian religions in this country. And I think that that's absolutely a great point, that that has been part of the mix here is this um, extremist variant of Christian Christianity. You know, yesterday in D.C., where I'm, I'm currently working, I saw a guy wearing a shirt that said uh, Catholic warrior, you know, and so that's the kind of thing that, that I think you're seeing. Yeah. Although I, I you know, not to di- digress too much, but uh, certainly the history of religion, there is a fair amount of violence involved in that. Uh, and may- maybe I'll just let that comment stand. We won't delve into that. But uh, Matthew writes, uh, the huge Bethel Church mega community has literally taken over Reading and seems aligned with the MAGA ideology right up to not wearing masks at their huge public meetings. What is the alliance between these hard-right evangelical churches in California and the right-wing groups in focus here? I think, uh, AC, you sort of alluded to that, but uh, do you or Carl, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I'm not I'm not so sure about about the details on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, here's another comment from a listener who says, uh, as we saw at the Capitol, these people are treated with kid gloves because they're white, good old boys, in quotes, uh, who are a significant part of the new GOP base. If they were people of color running around with guns and threatening violence, they would be put down so hard there would be blood running in the street. And I think... Uh, Carl, I think it's uh, certainly not the f- that listener is not the first person to make that point. The difference between some of the Black Lives Matter um, demonstrations in Washington and the how they were met with massive force compared to what happened last week on Wednesday. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Is that also cause for introspection among law enforcement organizations? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of really interesting things to unpack there, and I, I think one of the um, b- besides just like the white supremacy and the history of cross-pollination between these kind of militia movements and police departments is also the paramilitary aspect of many of these right-wing extremist groups uh, who come heavily armed and present and who and presents a clear and present threat to police officers, which may in, in some cases cause them to stand down. And the, just the history of armed conflict between uh, these kind of extremist groups and the federal government. And that's a violent, bloody history going back to uh, Ruby Ridge and Waco and then the bombing of the federal building. Yeah. I think there's that looking back at that history can tell us a lot about the challenges of reigning in that violence. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the phones. Again, it's 866-733-6786. And Ray in Atascadero, you're next. Yes, thanks very much for taking my call. We know that 74 million folks voted for Trump. And when you say the violent movement is widespread, are we talking about one in a thousand of those or one percent or 10 percent who are willing to resort to violence to achieve what they believe in? And also, is it worth our while trying to engage with the more moderate Trump voters to see if they can moderate some of this. And I'll take my answer off the phone. All right, Ray. 
Yeah, good questions there. Um, AC, I don't know if you have a, a mathematical formula to, to figure out how many of those voters uh, who voted for Trump. I know many, of course, do not support uh, what happened at the Capitol. In fact, we're seeing uh, in a poll uh, today and earlier this week as well, uh, support for President Trump is falling well below the level of support he got uh, in the election. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think anybody has a total handle on what proportion of the, the Trump uh, voter base is supporting, you know, really extreme measures like besieging the Capitol. But what I'll tell you from going to big Trump rallies during during the campaign is that part of the problem we have here is when I interviewed folks, they would say, look, the only way Trump is going to lose is if there's fraud, if the election is stolen by Joe Biden and the Democrats. And there was a widespread, I think, belief that um, the only way that, that Trump leaves office is through some act of um, lawlessness. And so if that's a widespread belief that has been promulgated over and over again by the president himself, you set yourself up for a people reacting to what they see as, as you know, this uh, historic trampling of American democracy. So we, we are, have been primed for a violent moment like this. Interestingly, a lot of those conspiracy theories and the steal, the election was stolen kind of message were amplified, of course, on talk radio. Uh, and uh, one of the largest owners of those talk radio companies, Cumulus, this week sent out a letter to all employees, including hosts, and saying basically knock it off, uh, that we need to heal, that this has gone too far, we can't be part of sowing uh, more division and violence. Uh, AC, do you, do you think that, is that just sort of looking after your, your, um, you know, your reputation and you know, whatever else it might be, or is this a, a genuine concern about, whoa, maybe we've you know, unleashed something here that we didn't anticipate or can't control, and it's time to put it, try to put it back in the box? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly, um, the media companies and the social media platforms have been really happy to uh, generate tons of traffic. They've been really happy to, to attract tons of viewers and listeners and have been really not particularly concerned about what the effects the, the people that are what people are saying on their platforms and on their airwaves would have on democracy. I think like when you start seeing this raining things in a little bit now, it's a little bit late. This is all the sort of, uh, you know, these are the management moves that should have been made months ago, not days ago. Yeah. And many would say that uh, this was entirely predictable and has been for, for years. Uh, Trisha writes, how can patriotic Americans stand up to this chaos and show support for our constitution, Biden-Harris, and our democracy without adding to the chaos? Good people need to be visible so average folks can take heart. Um, sort of a somewhat of a rhetorical question, but uh, any thoughts, uh, Carl? I mean, do you see that in some of, I mean, many of these, uh, you know, more rural communities are also, they're, they are religious and they're also, uh, they're certainly not prone to violence in, in, in an, you know, in, in general. Uh, you know, do you see any reaction, for example, in the faith community? Um, I, I can't speak to any reaction specifically in the faith community, but one thing I would say in terms of that is just the need for community conversations and community forums and community collaboration around some of these issues that are very contested in the West. I think uh, Burns, Oregon, which is the site of the Malheur standoff, is a really good example of that where there was kind of an existing 
um, partnerships and collaborations between different stakeholders who had interests in the public lands there. And that spirit of collaboration kind of helped keep that community um, from totally splintering and totally being radicalized during that uh, standoff in 2016. And, and Carl, you know, we, certainly in Oregon uh, and other parts of the West, in, and here in California, the Jefferson movement is spurred in part by this sense that the government, in, in this case in Sacramento, is really pushed and uh, driven by and led by people on the coasts, people especially in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area and Los Angeles, people who don't understand the needs of farmers, growers, ranchers, who have a different point of view on guns um, and taxes, perhaps, regulation generally, CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. Uh, I mean, is there... I don't want to say culpability, but, you know, when you talk about community conversations, uh, certainly uh, there must be a, a place, uh, AC, for example, in the Democratic Party to have uh, more sensitivity, perhaps, uh, to some of these concerns of groups that don't necessarily support Democrats on a regular basis. Well, you know, I think it's a great point. Uh, and going to the, the Trump rallies and the MAGA events, I'll tell you, like, a lot of people I've met were really cool people like and they would say to me i was a democrat until four years ago but i work in a factory i live in a small town i feel like uh the democrats have abandoned us my job went to china or my my husband's job went to china and the town is now desolate and they they felt abandoned by the coastal elites they felt abandoned by the democratic party and they felt like this is a, a guy in a movement that actually wants to help make life, their lives better. And so I think there's absolutely the basis for a conversation there. And I think there are legitimate reasons that people are, are angry. You know, you really very rarely see, for example, statewide officials in California uh, who come from, say, the Central Valley. I mean, I think the last one I can think of was Bill Jones, who was Secretary of State, came from Fresno, but that was you know going back 15 years or so now. Uh, I mean, part of it is just there aren't as many people living in those parts, uh, but the leadership you know does tend to be a little bit more to the middle or to the right, and it's just not going to win at this point uh, a statewide election, I guess. Carl, um, what 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 would you add to that notion about de the Democratic Party being? Uh, you know, I don't want to say complicit, but, uh, you know, that perhaps they have been tone deaf to some of these concerns that are driving some of these protests. Yeah, I, I think that just to, to some extent, um, one is that there are legitimate threats to livelihoods that come from these from environment from, for instance, environmental laws or reforms on how public lands are um, are managed, uh, whether or not the bigger threats are kind of participation in the global economy or environmental laws themselves. I think it's it can be hard to kind of tease out the differences between those because both kind of impact these traditionally uh, reliant on natural resource economies that we see in a lot of parts of rural California and the rural West. So I, I do think it's important to recognize that there are um, legitimate conflicts between perhaps an environmental agenda and the way that people have made a living in these parts of the country um, and parts of California. So I think uh, I wouldn't dismiss that. And I also would just note that th there's, there's going to always be a tension between what 
local people think they should be able to do on their land and what the majority of people decide is um, the priority, the political priority. And I think um, there, there's a there's kind of a trap there where you can be led by a minority that's interested or you can be kind of feel or that minority if they aren't leading on those problems they feel marginalized and uh, perhaps lash out. Yeah. Let me read some more listener comments here. Kira writes, in light of revelations that a handful of Capitol Police were complicit in last Wednesday's attack on the Capitol, I worry that security at President-elect Biden's inauguration may be fatally compromised. What is the status of this and what can be done to prevent Trump from doing more of the unthinkable? We also yesterday uh, heard of the resignation of the Homeland Security Secretary, the Acting Secretary, Chad. Wolf, who was in charge of security for the inauguration. Uh, AC, uh, what are you hearing from your sources and what? Uh, how concerned should we be about the security at that event? You know, I, first thing is I think that we should be vigilant and we should be aware that uh, over the coming months and, and be on the lookout for a potential mass casualty or serious violent act. I think that's something we have to do. Uh, but I don't think we should be freaked out and paranoid at all times. So it's balancing those kind of two impulses. In D.C., they are making very, very, very serious preparations to um, have a very controlled uh, inauguration. So they are mobilizing thousands of more National Guard troops. And when you walk around the city at this point, there are police and National Guard everywhere. Um, they are telling uh, the mayor, Muriel Bowser, is telling people not to come to D.C., that, that uh, you know, we don't want visitors. This is not going to be a mass public event. I, and I think there's going to be a lot of security in place that will minimize the risk. The problem is that, like we've talked about, there's a large base of people who are very angry. And it only takes one person with, you know, pretty minimal explosives or weapons knowledge to do something awful. And it may be something that happens in D.C. at the inauguration, or it may be something that happens at a state house in a week or a month or six months. But we have to be uh, on the lookout for, for those kinds of actions. All right, let me read another comment here. A listener tweets, there's no equivalence in violence between the left and the right. The right is openly threatening, planning, and undertaking violent, seditious acts in the name of their single demagogue. This is not a democracy if those who lose free and fair elections turn violent. And Lori writes, the violent conservative movements are terrifying, but uh, I strongly suggest that the progressive people not respond as it only motivates them more. That would leave the Proud Boys alone in the streets and nothing to do and with, with nothing to do and would make any violent activities clearer for all to see. Um, and then Annie writes, uh, anyone anywhere threatening violence should be arrested. Speech inciting or threatening violence is not protected by the First Amendment. Every time such people show up at government buildings throughout the U.S. is a new opportunity to identify them. Um, getting close to the end of the hour, and I, you know, this can be very dispiriting, this whole topic and uh, some of the things you were just saying, AC, about how easy it would be for one deranged person with a relatively small amount of explosive to do a lot of damage. I'm sure we're all now going to see much more strict uh, um, security going into places like the U.S. Capitol, as there should be, but also other government buildings in Sacramento and elsewhere. And I'm just wondering, you know, 
in your reporting, and I'll start with you, Carl, what gives you, if anything, cause for, for hope, for optimism? Um, I, I guess the one thing I would point back to is what I mentioned earlier about this sense of community and connections within a community in Burns, Oregon. And I think the kind of the greatest tonic to, and this is so hard right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's not a great time to be holding public forums and coming together and kind of working through these issues as communities. But I do think that bonds of community are kind of the greatest salvo for these kinds of, or salve for these kinds of uh, um, movements and this kind of uh armed extremism. I think yeah. that that's really essential. Yeah. And I think we haven't talked much about the pandemic, but I think that's really fraying nerves for all kinds of reasons in all kinds of places, political and otherwise. AC Thompson, what about you? Uh, what, what, if anything, gives you, uh, you know, optimism, hope uh, about the future? You know, I think Carl touched on something important. And, and I, just to be clear, I have not tried to engage in any sort of equivalence here. I've just tried to explain what I see as the viewpoints and motivating factors of different actors out there. But Carl's point's a good one. I think when we can start meeting more often in person again, where we can start having direct communication human to human again, and when we can stop spending so much time in internet rabbit holes day after day, isolated, I think we'll be in a better place. Yes, and I think we can all agree on that, and I think we can all agree that uh, the sooner we get vaccines into people's arms, the better off we're all going to be for all kinds of reasons. Well, thank you both very much for the conversation this hour. A.C. Thompson, reporter with ProPublica. Carl Sagerstrom uh, is the assistant editor of High Country News. Thank you both, guys. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. And then earlier in the hour, thanks also to Scott Rod, reporter with Capital Public Radio and Haley Branson-Potts from the LA Times. I'm Scott Schaefer, here today for Michael Krasny. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.